Creator God, we pray on this Labor Day for all those who work, giving you thanks for the gift of work. You made the heavens and the earth, and your work was good, and for it we praise you. May we continue your good work through our own labor, helping to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Deliver us in our various occupations from the service of self alone, that we may do our work in truth and beauty and for the common good. Whatever their setting, may all workers carry themselves with honor, know the respect of their managers, be kept safe from harm, and be well paid for their hard work. Help us listen to the struggles of those who work hard to provide for themselves or their families but still have trouble making ends meet. Open our eyes to the struggles of those exploited and help us speak out for just wages and safe conditions and time for renewal. For work was made for humankind and not humankind for work. Let it not be a vehicle for exploitation but a radiant expression of our human dignity. Today we also pray for those who are unemployed or underemployed. May they not become discouraged. May they continue to find ways to learn and grow in their time out of work. Help us as a nation continue to provide for those who are suffering from unemployment so that they do not lose heart nor lose home. May those out of work experience tangible evidence of your support and may meaningful work come quickly. Lord, may all the labors of our lives benefit your creation so that we might be co-creators of your world filled with peace and enough for all. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray the prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, today's scripture reading is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, 
Never before have so many people in my neighborhood been so open about their faith. Everywhere I walk, people are literally displaying the same creedal statements right out there on their lawns. Now, the Latin word for creed, or our word for creed comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe. And so everywhere I walk on the streets of the Armitage neighborhood, I see these same confessions of faith. We believe, or in this house, we believe, credo. Black lives matter, science is real, love is love, water is life, no human being is illegal, women's rights are human rights, kindness is everything. And so Amy and the boys, we, we go for a, a twice-daily constitutional, and we see these signs everywhere. In fact, more of them are popping up the more the weeks go along. And so I see these signs, and I thought, you know, they start, we believe, or in this house, we believe. And I thought, you know, we, we, we should get a, a sign in our yard that says, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what's surprising is that people would say, well, our neighborhood, technically, it falls within an an irreligious area, you know, the fourth most secular congressional district, if you look at the percentages of people who identify as atheist or agnostic or having no religion. The fifth congressional district, of which my neighborhood is a part and where this church is located, is the fourth most secular, in those terms, in the entire country, according to survey data. But, 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 well, it might be secular in that sense it's still deeply religious. There are creedal statements everywhere, and people want the world to know. And so this raises questions for me of what difference does a creed make, a statement of faith, of belief? What difference does a creed make? Right? A cynical person could say, what difference does a creed make where where people put out signs that say Black Lives Matter in my neighborhood when there are more signs that say that than there are actual black people in our neighborhood? A cynical person could say that. But to look in the mirror, to hold it up to myself, what, what, what would it mean to recite that creed, to put that creed in my own lawn, to wear that badge of Christianity, to say I have Christian faith? What, 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 what difference do those words make? in relationship to my own actions. And so our our passage this morning in James, it confronts us directly with the questions of the relationship between faith, between statements, expressed statements of belief on the one hand and actions on the other. What's the relationship between faith and action? And this is the most famous or infamous passage in James, depending on your perspective. It's because of this passage right here that the reformer Martin Luther referred to James as the epistle of straw, the letter of straw. And he said that not because he didn't think it belonged in the canon, but because he thought it had no doctrinal, no theological value when you compared it to something like Romans. It's not hard to understand why Luther would say that when you understand that Luther was the one who, when he was translating uh, the, uh, the, the Latin Vulgate into German, and Ger- I mean, Luther really created the modern German language through his translation of the Bible. And when he got to Romans 3.28, he translated it as, for we hold that no one is justified, or he says, we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. You're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. And then we get to our passage this morning, James 2.24, and it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So which is it? Are we justified by faith alone or not? 
by faith alone. Now, admittedly, Paul actually never said in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith alone. Luther added a word in German that wasn't there in the Latin or wasn't there in the Greek, and he had his reasons for doing this. He, he, he was attacked for that in its day. He had his reasons, which are defensible but not, not decisive. And so when it comes to faith and works and, and being justified, which is this declaration of God that we're in the right, that we're thus a part of His covenant family, His covenant people, the question is, is justification on the basis of of faith in Christ's work alone, or do we need to do something else besides belief? Paul, it seems, says all we need is faith. And James, it seems, is saying that faith alone isn't enough. We need faith and good works. Paul is putting the emphasis on creeds, whereas James is emphasizing deeds and creeds. Who's right? What is saving faith? So that's the question I want to look at at this morning. And so we're going to contrast what is dead faith that James points us to, and what is saving faith? What is a living faith that saves? But first, I just want to say a couple more things, because this relationship between James and Paul is so important, because we could say that their, their teachings are in contradiction, or we could say that they are in tension. And I think it's a creative tension, not a contradiction at all. Because while it's true that that we are justified, I believe that we're justified by faith alone. A faith that justifies is never alone. And there are many reasons for this apparent tension. Uh, One is that James is attacking what what would be a perversion of Pauline teaching. Paul's gospel of grace, that we are saved by God's sheer amazing grace alone in spite of our sin, it's always been open to abuse, of which Paul himself was well aware. In Romans, Paul talks about how, how where there is great sin, there is even greater grace. And then he goes on to combat the, the, the hypothetical person, or probably not hypothetical person, who would say, well, then I should keep on sinning so that grace, God's grace could, could abound even more. To such foolishness, Paul says, no. And yet, nine. Now, James, it seems, has, has some people in his congregation who've gotten the idea that since we're justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law, that means we don't have to do anything except say the right words or think the right thoughts. But for James and Paul, this completely misses what real faith is. More on that later. So one reason for this apparent tension is is there's a perversion of Pauline teaching that has become prevalent in James's church, and he wants to attack that. I think another reason for this apparent tension between Paul and James is that they're each stressing a different aspect of this word justification. This is a a, a famously uh, rich and complex and, 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 and multifaceted theological term. And so when Paul is talking about justification, he means it in terms of God's act of justifying us. That is, of making us righteous. And James is using the same word, but in a slightly different sense, as proof that one is in the right. And I've heard it described and illustrated like this. The way Paul uses justification is like when you go out to lunch with a friend and and he or she picks up your tab. That means your debt has been paid. Your friend's action of paying the bill has justified you. You're paid up. You don't owe anything to anyone. That's what Christ does for us, what Paul says on the cross. Our debt is marked paid and full, and thus we are 
justified. So if your friend said, your bill is paid, you're justified, you could say to him or her, well, justify yourself in saying that, which in other words means prove it, at which point they would provide you with evidence that your bill has been paid, like the receipt, or they could call the server, come out there to confirm it, which itself, proof itself is a form of justification. So these are the two ways that the, the, the word justification is used in the New Testament. Paul emphasizes the bill has been paid aspect, and James emphasizes the show me the receipt aspect. And lastly, I think one of the reasons we see this tension is that they're writing about different stages and different emphases of the Christian life. Paul is writing about how someone becomes a Christian. And James is writing about how one matures as a Christian. Paul is writing about new birth in Christ. And James is writing about growing up in Christ. And that's one of the great themes, actually, of this letter, is Christian maturity. How does one become a mature Christian? And if there is one thing the world needs now, it is mature Christians, mature women and men who love Jesus and are willing to follow Him and obey what He taught us. All right, so now... What's the difference between dead faith and living faith? And the example that James gives of dead faith is one that says, it starts with this. He says, you say that God is one. Well, good for you. And we have to understand that when James lifts up that statement, someone saying God is one, what he's referencing is the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6. It's the creedal statement of the Old Testament the most central confession and statement of Old Testament faith in God is Deuteronomy 6.4. Pious Jews still say it every single day to this day. It's a, it's a prayer that I, I prayed with a, a Jewish man as he lay dying in his hospital bed. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's the foundational statement, creedal confession of biblical faith. It doesn't get any more central, more foundational, more important than that, right? The central confession of, of, of not just monotheism, but ultimate loyalty to the Lord alone. And James says, well, you say that, good for you, but guess what? The demons say that too. And so the first marker of a dead faith, according to James, is that it is only an intellectual acknowledgement of a proposition. God exists. God is one. God is powerful. A dead faith is a faith that only lives in our heads, that is only concerned with the correct arrangement of our mental furniture. So correct theology is not the same thing as saving faith. And the second marker of a dead faith is this. The, the, the demons' response to their belief in God is this. James says, even the demons believe this. Even they could say the Shema. They, they would acknowledge that that's true. But he says, even the demons believe that. Even they acknowledge that. And they shudder. And so a dead faith is one that combines correct theology with a life of shuddering. So much of religious life is, is an extended exercise in shuddering. And shuddering can either be from fear, right? Because we believe that God could never really love us. 
and so he's going to zap us or doesn't want anything to do with us. Or, or shuddering can be from anger because we, we, we resent God because he's, he's, for any number of reasons, too strict. Or, or we can resent God because he's too gracious. This is the older brother in the, in the prodigal son story. We can shudder also because we just don't understand God, which makes sense because God is God and we're not. But, but I think in the 21st century, there's this sense that when we are confronted with the reality of a God that we don't understand, something we can't understand, we can't control, like the God of the Bible, we shudder. We shudder. So that's dead faith, correct theology, and a life of shuddering. But what is living faith? What is a faith that saves? It's a faith that combines correct theology with correct action, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now, James doesn't denigrate correct beliefs. To the person who says God is one, he says, you do well to say that. That's a great start, but keep going. Don't stop there. That's not enough. Because who cares if you say the right things or think the right things if you don't actually do the right things? That's as absurd, James says, as seeing a church member. And and that's what he's talking about when he says you see a brother or sister. That's referring to someone who's in the church. Someone who's a member of your congregation. Seeing them come and they're utterly destitute. That's what he's saying. They don't have clothes. They don't have their daily food. This is a person who is in complete and abject, total poverty. And not doing anything to help them. Can you really be compassionate if you don't combine words and actions? Can you really be a Christian if you don't combine Christian words, Christian beliefs with Christian actions? No, says James. It's like a body without a spirit. It's just a corpse. And we don't need zombie Christians walking around. So living faith is marked by right words and right actions. And we see two kinds of right actions that that James highlights here. First are actions that are attentive to the needs of the poor. And the poorest of the poor, especially. The person without food, the person without clothes. Christians are to care especially for the destitute because they are, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, that's where we meet Christ in the most real and present way and direct way. And in the poor, the poorest of the poor, that's where we see ourselves. Like the destitute, apart from God's grace and God's mercy, we are poor, broken, hurting, miserable, and in need of compassion, mercy, and justice. And the second kind of actions related to saving faith are those that reveal a courageous faith. A faith that trusts God so much that we are willing to risk everything, to give up anything, to follow him, to obey him. And the illustrations that James gives, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was willing to to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who risked her life and she risked her family to save the Israelite spies who came to Jericho before those walls came a-tumbling down. Because of their faith expressed in actions, wildly courageous and bold actions, both of them were able to play crucial roles in salvation history. 
So a living faith is seen in people who live with great conviction and courage, even in the face of great risk and great cost. And of course, in all of this, the reason that we are justified at all is that God so loved the world that, that He gave His only begotten Son. And unlike Isaac, who, you know, that His hand was stayed when His Son was going to be sacrificed, uh, Jesus did not turn away. The Father did not spare His Son. But He gave everything, and the price was fully paid. And we say in the words of that hymn that, 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 that love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so that's the basis for our justification. But now more than ever, and not just God, but a watching world is saying, well, okay, you say you're a Christian, but show me the receipts. Where are the receipts? And so what do we have to show? What do we have to show them? And what do we have to show him? We have to sit with that question. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.